Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and welcome to this Thursday's SIPREP, the BFBS Radio Defence discussion on things that matter to you today and in the future. In the next 60 minutes, General Dannett's latest salvo. But will MOD and Number 10 dodge the real issues? Just how good are British forces in Helmand? Why you never make peace with your friends? Is Osama bin Laden really still public enemy number one? Why the MOD so often botches public relations? Do we still need Trident? Why the Chinese are doing desert TV? And can gut feelings save lives? And the biggest military story of the year, the changing balance of Asian power. The edgy Cold War launched this week. Well, today is yet another Dannett day, isn't it? The Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Richard Dannett, who retires on the 31st of August, has today fired his, I suppose is his final uh, salvo in uniform. Uh, Maybe we thought there was nothing more for him to say, but he said it, and he said it at the International Institute of Strategic Studies, and Adam Moore, the Director of Studies, is is on the line. Um, General... Um, Dan, he was really talking about the future and, I guess, uh, the future strategic defence review. That was the gist of what he was talking about, wasn't it? That's right. I mean, this was a a valedictory, as it were, uh, and he made it very clear that he didn't want to generate sensationalist headlines in tomorrow's press, but he did want to put some markers down as to the challenge for defence in the next decade, put down some of the parameters as, as he sees them for any strategic defense review that a new government uh, would conduct, and and that would be something that would proceed from premises about what kind of role the UK would want to play in international affairs and the kinds of capabilities and resources that that role would then imply. So it is incredibly uh, thoughtful and and, uh, and long-term kind of analysis which he sought to present today, I think. Was it a global analysis? It was. I mean, certainly there was, uh, as would be understandable, an emphasis on uh, the current uh, uh, campaigns in in Afghanistan, but also um, a a realization that as we go forward with the Strategic Defense Review, we're going to have to balance the here and now requirements with the potential requirements that the UK armed forces are going to need in the future, maybe of a more uh, conventional and traditional kind. And so he was trying to discuss how uh, one proceeds from that in terms of where you put in resources. It's very clear what your current resources are. You do have to hedge against the threats of the future. The task of any review is to decide what those threats are and to make sure that we have the flexibility in place to respond to them if and when uh, they might uh, arise. So it was global. It was, it was long-term. And it was also a very much a, a, an in, inter-services uh, uh, presentation, if I can put it that way. There was no uh, special pleading uh, for, for, the, for the army in any case, and, and certainly uh, an attempt very much to, to, to preach the gospel of uh, inter-services cooperation. I mean, you imagine it, a guy that's been um, a soldier for um, what, 40 years, he will have been at the end of this month coming. Um, he finished, didn't he, on this thing about the relationship between the services and the public you know, the servant of the public. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think he got to a point in his speech when he wanted to draw the line under his argument and then to use the occasion really to, uh, I think, make some more uh, heartfelt comments about um, uh, the, uh, the the career he's had in, in the services himself, uh, but also, uh, again, uh, touching on this point of the relationship with the armed forces of the public, he, he expressed his gratitude for uh, the very warm reception which uh, recently returning forces had received uh, and hoped that that would certainly uh, strengthen and continue the armed forces, after all, represented the nation 
and it was uh, important that they be embraced by the nation and feel that they have uh, the mandate of the nation in that sense. Adam Ward, thank you very much indeed. Well, with me here in the studio, Professor Michael Clark, the director of the Royal United Services Institute, and uh, he's your next chairman, isn't he? Yes, on uh, September the I mean, 1st. not Adam Ward, I mean the general. <laughs> yes, General Dannett becomes the chairman of Roussy, uh, of my institute, on uh, the 1st of September. Yeah, yes. that's good. That's good, we're isn't very, it? We're very pleased he'll be an excellent chairman. Yeah, and also a very sort of somebody that the public knows. Yes, he's a public figure. He's a figure that, that expresses views on the forces. Um, he's been controversial, I think probably a bit more controversial than he ever intended. But as a, as a chairman, he has things to say about defence as a whole, and he has a public profile. So from our point of view, that's great. Mm. I mean, he was talking or making a point in his speech today um, about the forthcoming uh, defence review. And he said, you know, it's got to be resource-informed and not resource-led. That was the first yeah. thing. That's not that new. Well, they tried that before and didn't get there, did they? Yeah, the phrase in the Strategic Defence Review in 1998 was it would be foreign policy-led but resource-disciplined. And in a way, that's what people are saying now. But this time, as opposed to 1998, it really will be resource-led. Um, we, we can wish all that we want that this is a real strategic review. There ain't fact, no money. But the fact is, the, the defence budget is right up against a brick wall. And so the resource issue will be centre stage and the strategy actually has to be built around that. It shouldn't be that way, but we all know that in reality it will be but there is a there is another side of this i mean if you look at the for example of the financial times today it's full of stories about sparks of hope um banks uh, lending getting better sure. the americans are saying or obama was saying in a speech was it yesterday day before president obama he said i think we're on the turn here now if that money if, if people start to say well you know perhaps we're not actually in the red mm. then the MOD, the forces, can actually go to the Treasury and say, listen, don't use it as an excuse. Well, they can, but the problem for Britain is its, it's level of indebtedness, which means that uh, servicing that debt that we've taken on to get through this last uh, year is going to give us a, a, a dead weight on the economy for the next 10 to 15 years. And so public expenditure is going to be severely constrained. Even that, though, isn't the main argument. The, ma the main issue is both political parties, Labour and Conservatives, have both said that defence spending is not a priority for them. Their priorities lie elsewhere, and they've both been explicit about that. So unless something changes in the national mood or in our foreign policy commitments... Or you then, get into another war. Exactly. Unless there is something external, then on present trends, defence will take you know, we believe in my institute, we've done the figures, and we think it will take at least a 10% and possibly a 15% cut. So it, it will be structural. It will be as structural as the end of the Cold War in 1991 when, you know, the army was reduced from 180,000 down to 100,000. We are looking at structural cuts in defence, and that means probably, if we do it well, there are some opportunities here, real transformation in the forces, not just paring down, you know, s severely, but actually creating genuinely transformational forces. That's the the challenge, and a lot of people in the MOD and in the armed forces, I'm glad to say, actually are embracing that challenge. And that's the sort of thing that Richard Dannett is trying to encourage. He's not always being well understood when he mm. says this, but he, what he's really saying is we have to be much more transformative. And the next CGS, David Richards, is right on board with that. It's fascinating because, I mean, he's coming to you as chairman. The RUSI is going to be one of those organisations that actually has to s explain to government, explain to the people that are doing this defence review 
this is what you can do. And we've got a guy as chairman, we've got all your experts as well, who really do know what they're talking about. And in the past, sometimes, the people mm. who've known what they're talking about have been ignored. Yeah, that's, that's our mission. I, I say to my staff at Rusi, this is a, this is a one moment in a generation for an institute like ours, because although this is a hard time for defence, there are also some opportunities. And if Rusi doesn't rise to the challenge of being the intellectual powerhouse behind the public discussion about all this, then we're failing. We have to do that job. And so for the next 18 months, we intend to be as influential and as prominent as we can in creating the public arena to discuss the Defence Review. That's our job. Uh, Also here, uh, the Global Analyst from the University College London, Dr Martin McCauley, and the Director of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at the University of Salford, Professor Eric Grove. Eric, interestingly also in this speech, he said... um, any review on what's in place at the end of review has to be threat-led rather than capability-led. Well, what does that mean? Well, that strikes me as a bit of uh, army speak. But what does it mean? No, no it, that's army speak, basically, which is saying that we must be concerned about terrorism, we must be concerned about reconstru- you know, the kind of thing we've been doing in Afghanistan and, 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 uh, and Iraq, and I'm very suspicious of it, personally. We don't know what the threats are going to be in the future. Basically, our defence policy, it seems to me, has to be, to at least to some extent, capability-led. We have to have a certain set of capabilities which allowed us, allow us to, to respond to the various threats as they emerge. You cannot predict the future. You have to expect the unexpected. I didn't used to think that. I used to think you, you, that, that you could predict things. I found out, particularly in 1982, you couldn't. Well, you so, mean you got it wrong? Yes, I did, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I well, admit it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't admit it. Not on this programme. We'll have letters. Um, we'll have to write back as well. Martin... But I've learned from that. Ah, oh, dear me. How many times have we heard that? Martin, um, what, what strikes me is particularly interesting in this, in this argument about uh, threat-led rather than capability-led. It's not so much you don't know what's going to come up. You've got to decide the sort of things that come up that you are willing to respond to. And you may not want to respond to all the things that could come up in the future. Yes, because the, the world is now a hostile place and there's conflicts everywhere. If you look at Nigeria, uh, a conflict over, over oil resources, uh, Nigeria may be, may be becoming a failed state and so on. If you look at Darfur, In the north, anyway. Uh, in the north, yes, but also the Delta, anyway, yeah. the the uh, um, the Niger Delta people have been down to Lagos and and ruined the oil installations there. So uh, that's one thing. And uh, then you look at Africa, then you look at Asia, and so on, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and so on. The list is endless. So you've got to decide, as you say, what are your priorities? Because there's no way you can cover everything. You write off perhaps South America because Mexico is becoming a failed state. Uh, that you say that's the Americans' problem. Uh, the, that's, that's not for us. But basically, you could say that, well, uh, you might get on board. Uh, the, the key thing would be to get, try and get the Chinese uh, mm. to police the world with you, if that is possible. But not with... I mean, Mike, we're still talking in terms of almost as if we're not a superpower. We've never been that. This is a great power. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I think we see ourselves as a world power. I mean, in the, in, the, in the days up to the end of the Second World War, even up to about 1957, we thought of ourselves as, as one of the pillars of international society. One because of the we that, still had the empire. Yeah, yeah it's something that bore weight. We had the, the empire, we had the Commonwealth, we had the Stirling area. Then we nowadays we and can't. Yeah, we are. Yes, we're not a Although, load-bearing pillar well, that anymore. Was killed in 57, yeah. but, you're right, yeah. but, but what we are now is a player. 
And, and the argument that we're all engaged in over this last 20 years since the end of the Cold War is, well, how big a player do we want to be? What are we prepared to spend to be a player in world politics? I was just rereading uh, William Hague's uh, recent mm. speech on conservative foreign policy just uh, this morning. And again, in that, he was saying, well, you know, we, we have a role in world affairs, a disproportionately influential role, but what do we need to do to make that count? And, of course, what he doesn't question that is, well, do we want to have a disproportionate role in world affairs? Now, there is an argument that we do because we depend on a, a world based on rules, that we live by rules, we're a very globalised power, so an ordered world matters to us tremendously for our wealth and our trade and so on, and that we have a role to play in all of that. But at the moment, we don't seem to want to afford what it takes to play a disproportionate role in world although we spend a very large amount on defense actually we, we have the big we have the biggest defense yeah. we have the yeah. biggest defense budget proper defense budget yeah. outside the yeah. united states yeah. yes but there are two two objectives here one thing is not to allow nuclear weapons any state which is nuclear weapons allow the nuclear weapons to fall into the hands of terrorists that's one goal you have to intervene there the other thing is oil you have to defend the sea line sea lanes and you have to defend the states that export oil so you can say there are certain priorities which are, are there and you can't avoid them, and then the others are add-ons. Mm. The others are what you choose. You may choose to do. Yeah. But that's, you see, that's, these are all the questions which we, we, we are not fully debating in the country at the moment because we're fixated on Afghanistan and on body armour and the... Helicopters. Uh, helicopters. See, we can understand helicopters. Totemic issues, yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to grasp this much bigger issue that we're not sure what sort of country we want to be post-20th century, post-Cold War. We're in, a, we're in a post-modern society now, and we're a very... As a player, we're like an organism. We're not, we're not a country with territory anymore as such. We're an organism. We have a way of life to defend. We're not sure quite how to go about doing that. But we're not getting to the stage where we say, oh, right, to heck with the whole thing. We'll get uh, 2nd Battalion, uh, the, the Grenadiers. They can stand outside of Buckingham mm. Palace. That's it. That's what we do. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think we have got to that stage, but that is an option. The Little England option, yeah. I wouldn't recommend it, but, I mean, somebody ought to think through what would be the costs of that and what would be the implications of that when things go wrong in the world that we might want to do yes, something. I don't and, think and the other thing is that the European Union will, in fact, opt out. Well, I don't think... Well, so I think it becomes our wait a minute, wait a minute. I tell sorry. you what, don't you worry, Eric, you're going to speak now, okay, right. because I want to move on from that, because it's, it's, it's got this thing about um, where we go, and you were talking, Martin, about getting the Chinese involved, etc. Um, anybody heard of, uh, or do you know what Ariant is? Uh, I'll spell it, A-R-I-H-A-N-T, Ariant. It's the Hindi word, see? Come yes, for learning okay, in this fine, place. Yes. Hindi word for destroyer of enemies. Ariant is the SSN launched this week by India. Oh, the Indian USSN. They finally launched it at last. Didn't I mean, you know? I've been expecting... No, I didn't. You I didn't. come on here. No, You're supposed right. to tell no, us about no, it. I'm no, 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 no. No, I've been expecting it for ages okay, and tell ages us about, and Tell us ages. about this SSN. This is... It's, it was called the Advanced Technology Programme or something. And the Indians have been trying to build this for a very long time. They're building five of them. Uh, they are is, going is to build a nuclear Russian submarine technology? force. It, no, there, no. Will be a lot of, there will be a lot of Russian technology in it, I expect. Um, and it is going to fire the uh, nuclear cruise missile uh, that the Indians have uh, produced, and it will be an important part of their nuclear deterrent. I mean, this is big stuff, isn't it? The, Indi no, the, the Indians are a growing power. In fact, the big story for the next 20 or 30 years is going to be India-Chinese rivalry. Never mind Chinese-American rivalry. So it's not Pakistan who immediately got up and said, this will destabilise the region. It's the well, they Chinese... they would say that, wouldn't they? 
Well, of course, but it's the Chinese who are going to be far more apprehensive. The Chinese are going to be a little bit worried about that, I think. But it does, it does demonstrate... Well, the Chinese fact, are in the Indian Ocean anyway. Of course, and there is a growing confrontation. The trouble about the Indian Ocean confrontation is, with the best will in the world on both sides, it is bound to get worse, because the Chinese need communications across the Indian Ocean to support their... Very important Huge presence in Africa, oh, wow. investment mm. in Africa, oil, etc. The Indians mm. regard mm. the Indian Ocean as Indian. They regard themselves as the successors of the British in the region. Yeah. And there is a growing con- confrontation there, and it's bound to happen. I was reading, uh, reading what the um, Indian, um, I was going to say First Sea Lord, he's not a First Sea Lord, but the Chief, Chief of Naval, Naval Staff, Staff yes. was saying. Uh, I know him, um, in fact, yes. Suresh Mehta. Yes. Good guy, eh? He is, yes, yeah. very much. Yes. And he was saying the Chinese want control over the Indian Ocean. He called it the World Energy Jugular. Very much so, and that's very much the Indian Navy's It's a very Tigger thing to say, isn't it? Well, they're pushing it, they're pushing it, because they see that as a very important way of getting of getting resources for the growth of the Navy. And the Indian Navy is doing extremely well. And they, and they will have a nuclear submarine programme. They already have a carrier programme. Watch this space. But the Chinese uh, are building a naval base in Gwada in western Pakistan. Mm-hmm. They've agreed with the Sirankas at Hamatota mm-hmm. to have one in the, south. Yes, in, the south, in the south. Yes. Is that because they got the deal of this because they've been supplying all the weapons? They the, supply the weapons the Sri and they're army. defending Sri Lanka and the Security Council. Against the Tamil Thai, as we should ask. They, they, they hit the And... Nice deep water port. Yeah. And, and they want to deal with Bangladesh for Chittagong. Uh, and, of course, uh, Burma, Myanmar is, is their friend. So, therefore, from... What is, where's this listening station they've set up, the Chinese? It's, would... a, it's a sort of... Uh, you know the one that the Americans put it on... Uh, where is it? On the Seychelles, on Mahe, mm. this uh, satellite mm-hmm. listening station. The Chinese have got one yes, on, have, yes. on some Burmese island. I mean, this is... Well, this is conf- confrontational, isn't it? The Chinese see it in two parts. One is to secure oil, because if you cut off oil, the Malacca Strait is the key to it, and they're trying to get around that by having pipelines through, Bur- through Burma, Myanmar, to, to China. nicked by pirates, anyway. Yeah. And, and building next... a canal across the Kra Isthmus in Where's Thailand as well, at the yes. top of Malaysia in yeah. Thailand. What's it for? to get ships without having to go all the way through the Straits of Malacca to get them across the Kra Isthmus and straight into the, into now, the, the seas. the Chinese would also like China a base in, uh, uh, in Arabia and then in East Africa. And so therefore you'd have these mm-hmm. pearls across the Indian Ocean right through right. to Africa. And you can imagine what the Indians think about that. Uh, uh, they bopped him in. <laughs> Mike Clark, director of RUSI, is, you can hear him now, he's sitting here chuckling about the whole thing um, do you go along with this, the seriousness, or is it no, just it, it, different? No, there's, there's a competition. The string of pearl, pearls is a, is a genuine issue. Uh, there is going to be competition between uh, China and, and uh, India. I mean, the Indian Ocean is a big place. I mean, when uh, the chief of Indian naval staff describes it as a sort of jugular, mm. I mean, jugulars are quite narrow things that can be that can be squeezed. Um, the with, Indian Ocean is a great effect, mate. Yes, it. exactly. But the Indian Ocean is a very big place. Um, th- that competition is going to be increased, I think, as Eric says. The other interesting element of this, Obama made a speech this week um, in relation to China in which he said, you know, our reactions to each other will set the, the tone for the 21st century. And he's absolutely right. Um, the United States sees China, India, US as a triangle, much more than China, Japan. US as the, as the old Reagan triangle and I think Obama's onto that and that's very important it goes goes hand in hand with the idea that we're looking at the, the 21st century is the Asian century yes, and, and the Americans are becoming an Asian orientated power yes, and at present the Chinese have this beginning of a feeling that they're in the ascendancy yeah uh, they look at America it's bankrupt 
You get all this uh, uh, paper money floating around. They're telling the Americans to support the dollar and so on. And the Chinese now begin to feel that the, the, the world is turning in their favour. And, and the, the Indians are not great, willing to accept that. Yeah. What, the one great caveat is that Hu Jintao, in, uh, Chinese leader, he is ex- <coughs> he's obsessed with China's internal development because he knows that China will, as they say, become old before it becomes rich mm. because of the age structure of the population. And he is, uh, much more than they think about world affairs, they think about internal development and they know they've got big problems. And he is, he is a... He's potentially a great leader, Hu Jintao. Just an interesting thought. Um, the Americans have concluded some economic deal um, this week with, with China. And one of their guys was saying, because we have to take into consideration uh, human rights, and we think we've done that. I looked up some figures. Do you know the Chinese last year executed 1,782 people? They got 7,000 on death row. But it's worth an economic deal, isn't it? I want, to talk, about, uh, I want to talk about Afghanistan now. We had the uh, Soviet Union as our ally in World War II. Are you with talking more... about Afghanistan? No, we no, had the Soviet Union as our ally in World War II, and there were many more people in Soviet concentration camps than there were in Germany. But we were at war. OK, um, I was thinking, uh, and nobody here will remember the old Dinah Washington number, what a difference a day makes, but that's what I thought on Monday when everybody came out and said, we've got to talk to the Taliban. Talking to the Taliban, that's another film, wasn't it? Um... On the line from Washington, that's D.C., not Diner, um, and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, Dr. Karen von Hippel. Um, Karen, you are off to Afghanistan as an election monitor in two weeks. Yeah, you're going to have your work cut out, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, no, it'll be quite interesting. In fact, um, this talking with the Taliban discussion is, has you know, uh, been on and off the agenda now for some time, so it's not a new discussion. I think it was raised by uh, your uh, foreign secretary and, and, uh, and Douglas Alexander as well, uh, the head of DFID. Um, and Richard because... Holbrook was saying we can do it as well. You know, and Richard Holbrook was saying, yeah, we can, it's okay to talk to the, the right Taliban. Right. I mean, that's what people have been saying all along. The questions are, who are we talking to? Who's beyond the pale? Karzai says Mullah Omar should be included, and many on the international community don't agree with that. The second thing is, what's on offer? I mean, are we going to offer these people, you know, serious ministerships, or will they be uh, just more integrated into the military, into other posts? Who do you, I mean, everyone talks about the, the sort of the second tier. In other words, you can't take the really radical uh, ideologically inspired members of the Taliban. You can definitely take the foot soldiers, and then what you need are the people in the middle, the sector, who actually can bring with them many of the people below them. But but none of those details have been hammered out yet. Yeah, I mean the the the, the, the people at the top are not going to do the talking, are they? It's not like, for example, I heard um, David Miliband, the foreign secretary, saying, well, you know, with our experience in Northern Ireland, nothing like Northern Ireland at all, uh, where you really were talking to the top people because they wanted to talk. Right. Well, I think to some degree you will have to talk to some of them. The question, really the question is, uh, you know, how is that going to be managed? How, will, how is it coordinated? I mean, it really is up to the Afghan government, obviously, to take the lead given the fact that the international community is putting most of the bills there right now, uh, we will have a say in how it's done. And so really there are pretty big questions that haven't been resolved. Yeah. I mean, there is precedent. I mean, um, President Karzai, uh, well, back in 2001, I mean, he did do a deal with uh, Mullah Mohammed Omar, didn't he, Um, about Kandahar, but that was to let him go. The other issue is it's not clear to me anymore how... Uh, how much control Omar has over this very disparate 
um, and disjointed new Taliban. I mean, the Taliban are no longer the monolithic Taliban that they were before, and it's a, an amalgam of a number of different groups um, and non-Taliban groups that are operating in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. And so it isn't clear that if Mullah Omar signed on the dotted line that he would be able to even deliver uh, the majority of the insurgents that are fighting NATO troops. Um, in Afghanistan, and of course, killing civilians in Pakistan as well. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me also that the person that started all this, you know, um, this sort of almost paranoia, but justifiable paranoia, especially if paranoia is justifiable, um, was really Osama bin Laden. We don't much hear about any any sort of OBL rhetoric from Washington anymore, do we? Yeah, thankfully, I think one of the uh, things that the Obama administration is trying to do is move beyond this lionizing a particular person because the, you know, the, the belief used to be that you get rid of one big bad guy and then everything falls into place. That also elevates the, not only is that premise wrong, but it also elevates that person to a place where we don't want to elevate that person. So I think, you know, and it isn't clear to me either how important he is and how involved he is in directing the movement as well today. Tommy, when you um, when you get there for the elections, which is what, the 20th, the election is 20th of August. Yeah, I'll get out there on the I'll, I'll arrive on the 16th, but yeah. yeah. The elections what, are on the 20th, right? What do you actually have to do? Well, I'm part of the National Democratic Institute delegation, and so they will have election monitors out in different parts of the field. I think I'm going to be in Kabul. It's, it's quite difficult uh, for security reasons to deploy too many international observers to many of the places that are, you know, that are insecure right now. There are a number of Afghan observers. I think NDI has 87 out uh, in most of the provinces. There are other groups like the International Republican Institute, the European Union. Um, they all have election observers out there as well. But it will be a bit of a security nightmare for the people organizing this this thing. Okay, Karen, um, Karen von Heppel, I mean, uh, stay safe. Okay, bye now. Um, Michael Clark, I mean, if the whole thing about let's talk to the Taliban, you don't... You only talk to your enemies, don't you? You don't have to. You don't do a peace deal with your friends. No, exactly. The people worth talking to are the are the either your enemies or the supporters of your enemies or the potential supporters. I mean, this goes back a long way. If you remember, I was just thinking back of the of the the, the date. It was October two thousand and seven when Michael Semple and Mervyn Patterson, mm, yeah, working yeah. for the EU and the United Nations, yes, they got were expelled bins. from Afghanistan. Uh, one one it was a, a British guy and a Northern Irish guy. Uh, who, sorry, both British guys, mm. beg your pardon, um, but they were both expelled uh, because they were making contact with the Taliban. Actually, and hang, on, hang on, no, one's UK and one's, uh, one's British. I'm sorry, yes, yeah. UK in the case of the Northern Ireland <laughs> National, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> who was Mervyn Patterson. Yes. Anyway, they were both Sorry. expelled by uh, Karzai precisely because they were looking to open up links. And, and what you're trying to do is to peel away the less committed supporters. Um, and as I think as Karen said, uh, I mean, what we now call the Taliban is an amalgam of, of different warlord groups. And, and uh, um, I mean, people like uh, Gul Bahadur and, uh, uh, um, uh, what's his name, Batala Masood. Yes. Um, these people have operated on both sides of the Pakistani border. And if they can be bought off and peeled away, then the core Taliban, the people that Mullah Omar can actually control, um, will be, A, there'll be, there'll be a smaller group, and B, there'll be a lot harder for Mullah Omar to bring to bear in any significant way. And, and what's being talked about here, David Miliband made this clear this week, is, is not rewarding bad behaviour, if, if you like, but to say, if these people can be accommodated somehow within mainstream Afghan politics, 
then that is a, that's a, a, a benefit. That runs up against a lot of civil rights ideas in Afghanistan to say, well, these people's view of mainstream politics is still that Sharia law should keep women uneducated and so on and yeah. so forth. Um, there's a big argument to be had there because that's not the basis on which President Bush uh, intervened in, in Afghanistan in 2001, but it is the basis upon which Obama says... Went to this 80 we, years ago. Well, yeah, exactly. And With, it changes, war changes. It changes, and Obama is now much more realistic, and he's really saying if we can leave Afghanistan to the Afghans, albeit to a rather uh, unpleasant social uh, order, then that still would be a worthwhile outcome. But not an anti-Western yeah. government. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, the, the, key, the key thing here is uh, the Taliban will say uh, we have uh, views which are totally different from yours. Uh, our concept of democracy, our concept of civil rights, our concept of, of the state and so on, totally different from yours. Uh, hang on, uh, hang on. Totally different. When you say yours, who do you mean by I yours? I mean Western uh, liberal oh, yes. democracy. Yeah. And therefore, they will say, right, uh, we wish to impose, We, if we are to take over a territory and stop fighting, we wish to impose this. And therefore, the key then is to what extent the Sharia will be implemented. Is it the modest? How do you interpret the Sharia? Because it's interpreted in so many different mm. ways. And therefore, you have to come to an agreement to what extent the Sharia will in, will in fact be implemented because it will be implemented, mm. which will include a restriction on the education of females. You'll have to accept that. You'll have to accept the fact that the territory will in fact be ruled by males, by tribes, and so on. Uh, and the best you can get out of it is they will not attack us. That's right, and that, that's the problem with Obama's policy, because in, in terms of global security, Obama's policy is pragmatic and sensible, which is to say there's only a certain amount you can ever achieve in Afghanistan. Let's be realistic. But against that, you've got the whole ideological and human rights argument, which says that you therefore condone a state slipping into something that would be appalling by Western standards. It's a big moral compromise. This. Eric, can I yes. just clear up one point that I think that most people make the mistake. When we hear mainly from our Western leaders that we're trying to bring democracy to Afghanistan, we've now got over to the point when we say we're trying to bring like the mother of all parliaments and uh, no, etc. No. No, it's not just we can't, we've actually got over really that's what, we, well, when we well, say democracy we mean the people running their own country One would hope so, in fact the odd thing is perhaps it's not odd, I mean the attempt to actually make Afghanistan a, a, a sort of a European style or a, or a Western in a broad sense style country was actually carried out by the communists and they got opposed because of that because people hated them, them for that, exactly right All Right, okay we're exactly halfway through the programme. You're listening to SITREP with me, Christopher Lee, and still with me in the studio, Professor Michael Clark, Dr Martin McCauley, and Professor Eric Grove. Now, at the sharp end of this whole, this whole discussion about Af Afghanistan, as far as we're concerned, British forces, mostly army, but let's not uh, forget at all the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines, and the Royal uh, Air Force. They're all there. I want to talk army... Stroke Royal Marine at this stage. Boots on the ground stuff. On the line, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson. Um, Julian, I was reading the Commander Task Force Hellman, uh, uh, Brigadier Tim Rafford. He, he gave a very telling comment on the effects on troops of the action. He said, I'm quoting here, you look into the eyes of some of the soldiers and they have certainly grown up during this period. This, I suppose, is the nature of 24-7 conflict, isn't it? Well, it's the nature of, of any uh, high-intensity conflict that uh, people grow up extremely fast uh, and uh, young and immature men and women suddenly become rather more mature overnight. Uh, and it's not just something that happened, of course, in Afghanistan, but it happens in other places as well. 
but he's absolutely right by saying that. I was looking at some of the figures today that MED has published about, um, uh, or the new casualty figures about wounded, because sometimes I think the wounded are forgotten in the, uh, in the publication of the uh, figures. Whatever is published, it represents a tragedy. But, I mean, considering the length of this operation and the circumstances of it, have not the admittedly regrettable losses been actually quite low? Well, I'm, I, I say that. In, in view of the, the intensity of the fighting, they are astonishingly low. And let us just cast our minds back to a far less intense campaign, Northern Ireland, between 1971 and 1979, which is the same period of time we've been in Afghanistan. 331 British soldiers were killed in Northern Ireland, which is more than 189 who have been killed in Afghanistan, and some 2,725 were wounded. Um, the problem is you cannot fight people, and particularly people as uh, formidable as the, as the Taliban, without taking casualties, I'm afraid. Tell me about um, what you've observed. The, the, the pre-operational training, I was thinking, for example, uh, what's been going on uh, in Wiltshire recently with uh, 11 Light Brigade, which will be going presumably in September. Um, it's quite high standard, isn't it? Training's very high standard, and, and they end up by doing about a two-week long exercise uh, with all the bits and pieces that they need, and uh, they are put through uh, the mill very thoroughly, and the training is absolutely excellent and, and first-class. It would it, be, be difficult to better it, I think, actually. What would you... Uh, I mean, is it, this is not... A sort of uh, you know a PR sort of section for the British troops in Afghanistan. How would you how would you rate them? Well, I rate them extremely highly, actually, uh, because they are very committed and very well trained. Uh, I always say, actually, that the, the British troops, and I include Royal Marines among soldiers as well, are better trained than when I was serving some twenty something years ago. I think I have no hesitation in saying that. Uh, and I, I'm full of admiration for the standards that they achieve. Has the, uh, the, the debate, you know, helicopter uh, debate, have we got enough, have we not got enough, uh, which is something which we were talking earlier, that the public can actually latch onto that, that's the sort of thing they understand. Does that actually mask uh, some of the, uh, the deeper uh, difficulties that British forces actually have to face daily while they're there? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, the helicopter debate is interesting because people swing one way from saying the answer is helicopters and we won't have any casualties, of course, is nonsense, to saying helicopters are not the golden bullet, but they aren't out that either. I mean, the fact is that once you arrive on the objective, whether you arrive by helicopter or by the number nine bus, you're then up against a very fierce enemy and you'll start taking casualties. What you can do with helicopters is avoid having to use roads. You can swing it around. You can do things in a much more flexible way by using helicopters. But, of course, in the end, I have to say, uh, the helicopter will be, a helicopter will be shot down and a lot of people will be lost uh, if, if it's loaded. Uh, but I think we could save quite a lot of the casualties that we're taking on the roads now by using more helicopters, particularly for logistic use. Right. Julian Thompson, thank you very much indeed. Michael Clark, I mean, is it fair to try and judge the performance of, what, 3,000 troops over this five-week period of, um, of Panther's Claw? Well, it's, it's, it shows what they can do. I mean, they've effectively been pinned down in five main bases for over a year now. 
And with the Americans' arrival, that releases some of the pressure. And the idea is get out on the offensive, stop the Taliban dictating terms. In, in one sense, the, the offensives, I don't mean to belittle them, but, but in a sense, the offensives are comparatively easy. The troops know what they're doing. As Julian said, they're extremely well trained. This is what they, this is what they join up for, to go on to the offensive. The hard part really starts now, which is to prevent the Taliban infiltrating back into the area that they've now got some influence as over. As they did originally. Exactly. And they can infiltrate back as locals, dressed as, as women, uh, as farmers. And I'm sure the Taliban will be trying to create incidents. They'll create incidents where innocent people get hurt, and that will reflect badly on the troops. So in a sense, the real professionalism of our troops will be more tested in the next three to six months with phase two of this operation than it has been in the five weeks of offensive operations where they know exactly what they're doing, it's what they train for, it's what they want. The next three to six months will, will test all of the things that they haven't been able to train for quite so well because these things just come down the road at you in a unique way. But you can't do this on your own in a place like Afghanistan. You can only do it in collaboration and in cooperation with the Afghan army. Yes, indeed. Because who's going to identify uh, the Taliban? The average uh, Britain doesn't speak Pushtun mm. or, or the language. Yeah. It can only be an Afghan, and therefore, unless it's very, very close cooperation, uh, uh, you could be unsuccessful. And that, that's, that actually is one of the problems. I've been pressing all of my um, colleagues in MOD and so on to give me some answers about how many... I said, how many Afghan army uh, units were working with you at Panther's Claw? And the answer is very few. The Americans had a battalion with them. I mean, they said they, they had about seven or 800 Afghan ANA uh, members, which is about a battalion. Um, did we have that number in our sector? No, we didn't. We had uh, some companies. And the fact is, there don't seem to be enough ANA units, Afghan National Army units, that are trained and in the area to do exactly what Martin is saying. The problem is that the strain will be taken by the British forces because there aren't enough Afghans to do it. Mm -hmm. Eric, do we know if, I mean, it's the other side of it, I suppose, whether the commanders that have gone out there, um, whether they've had from MOD, from government or from whoever, clear, this is your objective. This is the time frame you must achieve your objective. Well, I hope they have done. I mean, the, but one problem at the moment, I feel quite strongly, actually, and I've, I've said it before on this programme, is that we, we, we know the casualties, and now we know the wounded as well as the dead. But what are we achieving, except in the more general terms? We won't say how many Taliban we've killed. Well, perhaps it's very hard to say, because people get carried away and this kind of thing. But... Some estimate of the success is, I think, very important. And I think we're missing a trick here, actually, in saying, OK, we've taken losses, but because we've taken losses, or as part of that at least, we have achieved objectives. And I think perhaps we ought to be a little bit clearer about what objectives yeah, we have the, achieved. There are two success criteria we could establish. One is the elections on August the 20th. Yes. They're, they're probably going to be a damn squib, and I'd like to be wrong about that in Helmand. But if they're not, that's good. If the elections are in some way meaningful in Helmand and Kandahar, then that's success. The, the second area of success is that the British now can control, sorry, British and Americans between them, control the area that, that uh, occupies about 100,000 people. So there's about 100,000 Afghans who are now under the influence of Western security. If that figure remains at about 100,000 in six mm -hmm. months' time, that will be success. That because that, that, is, that is de yeah. that's de-Talibanised them. But that needs to be sold, though. That needs to be yeah. sold. Yeah. And it, it's but, not being... But the, population, Martin, the popula on, but the population of Afghanistan is 30 million. Yes. And if you look across the border in Pakistan, it's 150 million. So the question of how many True Taliban enough. you kill is basically irrelevant because there's almost like a conveyor belt mm. uh, who will come in. And they, uh, die, they die quickly. They, they die bravely and quickly. Yeah. And, uh, and if you talk to an Afghan uh, and a Pushtun, he will say, I will die for my country. 
Absolutely right. Every single one. But at least, but one does need a more balanced view, I think, than is being put over. Talking of balanced views, I thought the whole thing about Trident and renewing of Trident was all settled. Uh, Eric, uh, I thought it was settled in the Defence White Paper of 2006 when... Tony Blair, and I've got the quote here, says, I am confident, don't do the voice, (laughs) I am confident that the debate will only confirm that maintaining our nuclear deterrent is in the best interest of the country's future security. I ask myself, okay, it's settled. I also ask myself, Eric, what debate? Well, there hasn't been a great deal, although there was one in Parliament, and they they did publish a white paper with various options in it, actually, although the options were clearly directed, I think, towards the answer that that, that seemed to be the obvious one, which is uh, sort of the the modernisation of the Trident uh, Trident system. It's going to happen. I'm pretty sure it will, yes. I don't see the Conservatives scrapping the Trident system. Nuclear weapons are very much close to the political instincts of the Conservative Party, going back to Margaret Thatcher. After all, we do, have son, we do have sons and daughters of Thatcher in the Conservative Party still. And the nuclear issue was so salient in those days. Yes, I agree that Cameron has said that perhaps some alternative might be a possibility, but I know there are other people in Conservative ranks who say, well, he was a bit off-message there. I think that the Conservatives are pretty... Even a new government would be pretty committed to keeping the Trident system. Mike, just earlier this week, you must have heard this, uh, number 10 was briefing certain people saying, well, you know, it could be up for grabs uh, because we've got this whole nuclear disarmament thing mm. that... Uh, well, it's, it's more than a nod and a wink, actually, because it's, it's enshrined pretty well in a document that came out last week called The Road to 2010. Mm. And this is the government's policy paper leading to the Non-Proliferation Review Conference next year. Now, we all know that the NPT... April, May. Uh, May, I think yeah, it is, May, 2000. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure right. it's May 2010. And, and the, the Non-Proliferation Treaty was, has been historically a very effective arms control treaty, but for the last 10 years it's in deep trouble. And if the next five-yearly review, due next year, if that fails, then the treaty is effectively dead. Government is fully aware of that and has actually created a policy document which is much wider and more imaginative, I think, than anything that we've, we've produced before. And in that document, the, the commitment is made, as the Prime Minister said in February, if American-Russian arms control is successful in renewing the START uh, arrangements at the, by the end of this year or sometime after the end of this year, if the numbers come down, then we stand ready to put Trident into the mix. Now, we've never said that before, and I think that's a pretty clear government commitment, at least to consider arms-controlling Trident, and that might mean reducing the number of warheads. Yes. I wrote a paper about this, if you remember, back in, you the, 19, back in, you back, remember back in the 1980s. But the fact is that the, tr- <laughs> the, Trident, the Trident replacement, as Tony Blair es- expressed it, is up for grabs, May, not, not the principle of maintain, maintaining nuclear weapons, but how we do it, how many we have, what sort of system it is. And it doesn't even, have to be Trident. doesn't it? have to be Trident. Well, but there was a certain amount of space. I mean, I mean, they were saying perhaps three submarines rather than four. Exactly. And yeah. a reduced number of declared warheads as well. I tell you what, this is good stuff, because the whole debate about this, and not just Trident, but uh, nuclear weapons throughout the world, we're going to do a, a special programme on Thursday the 13th of August. Thursday the 13th of August. Put it in the diary. We're looking at the history of nuclear weaponry, its value today, also the moral argument um, at SITREP here on BFBS Radio and listen again and podcast at bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Put it in the diary. Nuclear bangs for the buck, 13th of August here on SITREP. Now, um, Martin, very quickly, um, <coughs> the reason for all the uh, for Trident, etc., was the Cold War thing. 
Now, the House of Commons Defence Committee has produced a, a paper on what should be future strategy towards the uh, to Russia. I was going to say the Soviet Union, but towards Russia. You were one of the people who gave evidence in this. What's, what's, what's the deal? Do, uh, you know, I thought we'd just ignore Russia now. No, there is a risk, uh, and uh, the Russians maintain that they have a privileged uh, zone of influence, which is the former Soviet Union, except the Baltic states, uh, which includes Ukraine and Georgia. Therefore, if there's going to be a conflict, a military conflict, uh, it will be either over uh, or and Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, and there are Russian military commentators who believe that the conflict will be in Georgia. Now, if you look at uh, Ukraine, why is a conflict? It's Crimea, the Russian naval base of Sevastopol, which the Ukrainians want to close in 2017. Uh, and Hang been, on, Sevastopol, is that what I call Sevastopol? Yes. The same place. Yeah, yeah okay. same place. And there have been incidents, either orchestrated by the Russians or the Ukrainians, uh, which is uh, inflamed uh, passions. Now, it depends, I, I argue, it depends on how weak Russia becomes because Russia is heading for uh, uh, really bankruptcy over the next year. And Putin, who's the number one decision maker, uh, given this situation, what will he do? Will he go for a short, successful foreign war uh, to deflect attention and mobilize the nation and so on? The risk is there. Michael, do you, do you, have you got a risk chart uh, with Russia in your office? Mm. Well, <laughs> I have to say, I, Martin gave evidence to the Foreign to the uh, House Commons Defence Committee, and I advised the Defence Committee on this mm -hmm. report and this this hard-headed approach to engagement with Russia, based on the reality of Russian foreign policy rather than an abstract and misleading notion of shared values. We hammered that phrase out actually mm. on the assumption that that's what it has to be, and I think the more evidence the committee took the more hard-headed they decided the approach should be. That we all talk about shared values, but actually, when you look for shared values with the Russians, they're, they're relatively hard to find. Mm. What, is, what are easy to find are the issues that divide us, and it's the sense that we have to engage with Russia, of course we do, but you always need to draw red lines. Mm. The Russians push until they Absolutely. see where the red lines are. This when they know that where the red lines are, then they, they basically stick to them. This they, is, this but is they not need to have clarity. This, well, is this, not was, on, this was Pankowski who said if you push, they'll not build the Berlin Wall. Exactly. Yes. And we didn't push. Yes, yes. But this is not a return to the Cold War. This is a return to the mm. 19th century. This is a return to the containment of Russia. Oh, so which you're was saying a, our sense of history is missing here. Well, it, it, it tends to be. Who was Britain's major opponent in the 19th century? Russia. The containment of Russia was a key key dimension of British foreign policy virtually throughout the 19th century. But that century. was all to do with the empire at yes, the time. Yes, it wasn't to do with Europe. But at present, at present, Russia is not a military threat to us or to any other European state or to the United States or even to China. The energy threat? The, the, yeah, the energy threat, so that's a tr strategic. But the, the danger is that some type of local conflict, say mm. in Georgia or Ukraine, could spread. So don't make them your allies. And involve <laughs> us. Okay. Listen, um... Today is um, more demos in Iran. Uh, Shia Muslims mark 40 days after a death in a ceremony called the Abayin. And today is the 40th day of mourning in Iran for 27-year-old Nader Aga Sultan, who was shot dead as she watched protests from the sidelines of a demonstration in Tehran following the presidential election. Her death, one of ten that day, was filmed on a mobile phone and she became sort of, an, uh, I'm going to say, an icon of the whole uh, demonstration. On the line, the Times correspondent, Martin Fletcher, has been watching uh, uh, today's demonstrations. The scale, Martin, is it as large as you'd expected? I think it's larger than a lot of people expected. There are 
basically two stages. There was one ceremony in a cemetery south of Tehran where Nader Sultan is buried, and then there are, as we speak, running battles taking place once again on the streets of Tehran, and they're not being quickly suppressed as they have been in, in recent weeks. They are continuing as darkness falls. People who are in Tehran tell me that they're bigger than they expected, but the point is that it's now seven weeks since the election, and despite the best efforts of the security forces, despite all their brutalities, brutality, despite the mass arrests, the opposition is still there, still going out on the streets. It has not been crushed. It's also true that there seems to be not necessarily a crumbling of authority of, of the leadership, but it's certainly shaken, isn't it? There's disarray within the regime as the opposition grows more united and uh, sort of more encouraged the the regime seems to be in in a lot of trouble there are two main issues one has been the stories coming from prisoners from detainees who've been released from jail and from the relatives of those who've been killed while in custody shocking stories of brutality um, of deaths of torture of those who've been held including the son of a very prominent conservative and i think this is appalled not just the reformists, not just the opposition, but a lot of hardliners as well. And secondly, Mr. Ahmadinejad, for reasons best known to himself, has picked a fight with the supreme leader, his patron, um, over the appointment of his son's father-in-law as his um, deputy prime minister. He did this the Saturday before last. Last Wednesday, the cabinet rebelled. Um, it demanded that Mr. Ahmadinejad obey an order from the Supreme Leader that he dropped this man. Mr. Ahmadinejad waited until Saturday to do so. Uh, and when he did so, he merely appointed him to another position as his chief of staff, and he sacked at least two, possibly four, of the ministers who had rebelled at the cabinet meeting the previous the previous Wednesday. He also so, sacked, uh, he also uh, sort of went along with the Supreme Leader, didn't he, on a, on a point of law, not on a point of recognising the authority of uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. I'm sorry, I don't quite understand you. Uh, well, I mean, the point is, he, he, he said, OK, I will uh, do as you say, but I will do it on a, point of, on a legal point, not uh, because you have said. And that strikes me as, as actually going against the leadership. Well, there's been an outcry um, among conservatives in conservative newspapers, conservative MPs, groups affiliated to Ali Laranjani, who is the uh, Speaker of the Parliament, demanding that Mr. Ahmadinejad obey the Supreme Leader and warning that if he doesn't, he could be deposed. They, they, they're raising the plight of uh, Bani Sadra, the, the first Prime Minister of the Islamic Republic, who was, who was deposed. Mm. The other thing about this is we um, we must get clear the people that are uh, rebelling, for example, and the people who are demonstrating even now on the streets, they're not demonstrating against the Islamic Republic, are they? No, they don't want to overturn the system, but they, they, they both sides claim to be fighting for the for Islamic values. Uh, with the opposition, Musavi supporters, saying it's the regime that is overturning Islamic values by rigging the election, by the brutal suppression that has followed it. 
and the regime is doing its best to paint the opposition as the, 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 the force that is out to subvert the revolution and the Islamic Republic, um, suggesting that it is driven by Iran's foreign enemies, that they are behind all the trouble, they're fermenting the unrest. Martin Fletcher of the Times, thank you very much indeed. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, uh, Martin? Martin McCauley. Uh, what is, what is a, of key importance here are the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, the Revolutionary Guards hold the key, I would argue. Uh, and they are, we know they're split. Now, if they, they in the end will decide uh, who takes power or who keep, keeps power in uh, Iran because Hamenei, Ayatollah Hamenei, relies on the Revolutionary Guards. Revolutionary Guards are members of the uh, government. They dominate parliament and so on. Uh, and if, if a majority of them decides that uh, Iran is heading towards a 1979 revolution where they would lose power, uh, they may in fact change sides and bring in a new, not only a new supreme leader, but also a new president. Uh, I would see them... Uh, and it's very difficult to get information on this, I would see the Revolutionary Guards as the key players in this. Yeah. Uh, Michael, Michael Clark, it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? We've had this great debate about, uh, you know, it, will Israel bomb uh, mm. Iran to, to knock their nuclear program out? And yet, to some extent, the system is changing in front, and we've had nothing to do with it, well, this or very is, little. This was always the issue, that, that uh, over uh, Iran's nuclear program, the argument was always just, Play for time, just buy time as much as, and we haven't bought very much time. But in fact, in, internal change, you know, will happen in some way. Of course, it always does. And what what everyone felt was that the um, certainly Ahmadinejad, but in general, the the present um, Iranian government cannot deliver economically to the people, to the aspirations of younger people who are bright, educated, and dynamic, out of work. and out of work. That's the point. And they've got they've got such a high proportion of their population under the age of thirty, many under the age of twenty five. If they can't satisfy that, then they've got a real problem. And what we're seeing, exactly as you said, it's not that these people want to overturn the the uh, Islamic Republic, but they're dissatisfied with the government that cannot give them what they want. This is what we always thought would happen. Now, if there's, a, if there's another roll of the dice in uh, Iranian government, the nuclear issue may or may not change. Quite likely, a new government will be just as committed to a nuclear program as the present government. That's but, entirely likely. But at least there's a new set of players yeah, to try to engage but, with. But they may find themselves within six months without the resources exactly. to continue. They will, they'll have to decide, should we spend more on nuclear, nuclear power yeah. or should we, in fact, uh, spend it on importing food? Uh, and petrol and all these things, uh, because 30%, as you say, 30% of the population are under 30 and are very disillusioned. It's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. I love it. I love it. I love it. Simples. Um, listen, uh, the MOD, uh, the non-PR organisation, I've really got to have a go at this. Uh, examples this week. Um, the MOD tomorrow was supposed to have given... had to have had permission from Iraq to keep about 150 personnel in Iraq to train the new Iraqi Navy. But the Iraqi parliament hasn't given permission, I think, on their holidays. So UK personnel are having to go to to Kuwait. Kuwait. Right. Uh, That's not the MOD's fault, but somehow any PR man would have second-guessed it was going to happen. The next thing, this 
court case. Now, the MEDs now, I had Bob Ainsworth, the Secretary of State, saying, we're going to play the decent thing about this. The court case to stop injured service personnel getting civilian levels of compensation. Why didn't someone, Eric, you know about the MOD. A bit. (laughs) Come on, you've had loads of fights with them. Why why hasn't somebody got a grip of this whole PR thing? For goodness sake, we've been war in two different countries in the past, well, since 2003. Mm -hmm. And we still haven't got it right. Well, it does seem it does seem a rather sort of narrow-minded approach, actually. And I think one gets the impression that there are different departments of the MOD who sort of help create policy and this kind of thing without taking the overview of how badly this looks in the press. And I don't think the PR at, the M- at an MOD level and also at a single service level is actually that good because, you know... Why the, isn't it, though? I, I mean, don't, it's not good I don't all these know, happen. to be perfectly you know, honest. Mike? They are very overstretched. The communications department is trying to cope with, if you like, two wars at once, plus all of the mm. pressure that defence is under. So, A, they're all under pressure, and B, remember, they've had a lot of secretaries of state. So what the MOD has lacked... And one secretary of state for Scotland. Exactly. One of them was who's who shared with Scotland, which is a nonsense. That was weird, wasn't it? Yeah. So they've lacked, as it were, a, a steady political hand at the top, whose instinct... I mean, Bob Ainsworth is doing the right thing now, mm. and if he'd thought of this last week, I'm sure he would have... Somebody should have said to him. Yeah, somebody needed to have said to Bob Ainsworth, look, Secretary of State, this is coming up next week, what do you think? And his political antennae, which are quite good, mm. would have would have wobbled then, instead of which they wobbled when he was on holiday and he came rushing back, and he's now doing the right I thing. Think, I think that, Shouldn't po- have got into I that, think that points to a structural problem. People are scared to do things because they don't know what the, what the Secretary of State yeah, wants yeah, to. Yeah. And, but, and, and, and therefore but you need you that strong gaps. politician That's at the true. top who's there for long enough to give it that sense of political grounding. Now, may I, 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 wait, 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 I ask, should this Secretary of State have gut reaction because his is his, his, his Usually, not a bad thing, gut reaction, first instinct. But let's see what the Americans are doing. Over the past two years, 800 military men and women, experienced fighters, subject to personality tests, and measured depth of perception, whatever that is, uh, they've been relating all their abilities to these tests. And they come up with the idea that it's gut reaction that saves, saves lives. That's probably true. In what do you mean, way? probably true? No, I'm sure it is. I mean, you have to... You Give me have some to, examples. With no, I mean, I think, I think when you're being shot at and when you're in a very dangerous situation, you haven't got much time to have a great intellectual process. But, what, you, but, but you can be trained. So yes, you're training. I was going to say training. That's Absolutely you, right. you, They always say your training kicks in, so you do things on instinct because you're trained. You're, yeah, you, you, instinct. Your instincts are trained. That's in, instinct yes. is the key word here. Uh, because if you experience your instinct, will they be trained as well? Hmm. Soldier, soldiers who don't feel fear are very dangerous soldiers. Yeah. They put other people in danger. But soldiers got... should should feel fear, and then they, re, they their gut reaction kicks in. And if it's a properly honed I mean, reaction, exactly. There was right. one right example thing. of this. Uh, there was there was there was a, a, a brick, a platoon, in uh, a company in Fallujah, I think it was. And one of these guys suddenly said uh, to his corporal, "That doesn't look. That box is a wrong shape. I don't know what's wrong with it. But it's a wrong shape. Mm-hmm. Turns out it's an IED." Now, course, that yeah. is gut reaction, isn't it? Well, exactly. very often when you can spot something, somebody approaching a roadblock or somebody that's just not right in a vehicle, you, if somebody said, why did you know that? It's actually a hundred different things that but you've trouble, absorbed. Yeah. You, can't, you can't pick any one of them. But, no, but you might shoot the wrong person as but well. Tra- might training and experience is designed to allow your gut reaction to do the right thing mm. yes. or to encourage it to. Is it famous? Have we got any historical examples of famous commanders with said, I did that in gut reaction? Or, or oh, Wellington, all the time. 
Well, I think all the time. I mean, if you look at the Battle of Assay, I mean, he in in India, in India uh, which I he mean, reckoned was his best battle. His best battle. I mean, he his gut reaction was they said all the crossings, all, all the fords are guarded, and all the crossings have been taken down. And he looked at a couple of villages either side of the river, and he said, "Well, my, my instinct is you'd never have two villages either side of the river if there wasn't a crossing there, and that's unguarded." He went down in front, and there it was, and he got his troops onto the right side of the uh, right side of the river just in time. Mm-hmm. Sheer instinct. Anybody instinct. else? Yes. Instinct. Instinct's the key. The key to yeah. it. By the way, on the twentieth of August, we're actually doing a program on leadership, on what people have said and how they've said it and when they said it. It'll be quite interesting. Twentieth of August. Here's a plug. In Churchill led by his instincts all the time throughout the Second World War. He never calculated anything. He no, felt no, it. And the he result was and the result was sometimes so terrible mistakes. It was yes, as well as the leadership he provided. Uh, yes, Hitler. Un- un- unlike Hitler, Hitler. Hitler, when he took over command of the German army, in fact worked on instinct. And he got it right, but okay. in, in the end he got it wrong. Now, chaps, we've got, we got 30 seconds to kick this around. Gut instinct about the next 12 months for the armed services, Michael? Yeah, it's going to get worse. I mean, it, it could get better, but I think it will get worse. Martin? Uh, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and possibly uh, more troubled over oil. Right. A defence review of some kind. And well, we ho- know that. Yes, but that's important. And What's your ho- gut instinct? The gut instinct is they'll probably take the wrong decisions, as they usually do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> dear. <laughs> My goodness, that's it for this week. My gut instinct says thanks to Martin McCauley, Eric Grove, Michael Clark. If you missed some of all, want to listen again, try listen again and podcast at bfps.com forward slash sitrep. We'll be here same time, same round table next Thursday. I'm Christopher Lee. Guess what? Mary's in the hut. Bye now.